nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Live from Swansea, this is The Twilight Show with Nathan Ginn. Hello everyone, welcome to Swansea and tonight on the Twilight Show on Teachers Talk Radio we are talking about reading. Reading in England, reading in Wales and we're looking at the different approaches and what is the most effective way. We've got Christopher Such and we've got Rob Randall, so join us, tune in, talk it out. Off we go. Live from Swansea, this is The Twilight Show with Nathan Ginn on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Good evening. Um, and uh, as I say, it is um, w- from South Wales today. It is cold. That is my only description I have for today. Uh, it is cold. Um, and um, we are, I'm just seeing some people, there we go, just inviting them in to join the call. We have got Christopher Such and Rob Randall joining us. Um, hi there, got here. Uh, it's Chris Such here. Can you hear me okay? We can hear you, Chris. Um, I've got to get you to change that username. Uh, you're, you're currently WEMV. <laughs> I can see Rob has joined us in the studio. So, Rob, if you want to hit click that call in uh, button as well, we will join. Um, as I say, it is uh, very cold here in South Wales, where I am. And we have had two days uh, planning for what to do if we have to go to remote learning. And... Um, the uh, the pretty much midday today it looks like my school is going to be closed tomorrow not due to anything covid related but because the boiler had broken um which is uh yeah uh, we nearly had to use our remote learning plans not because of covid but because of a boiler failure um, but there we go rob can you hear me oh i'm here how are you doing hi how are you doing um two planning days for you in in south wales as well there is in my school uh, a little bit different for me. I've I've actually started on a Welsh language course. Um, oh, okay. So yeah, so not in the building at the moment. Where doing? Yeah, I, doing I, I haven't left them, but uh, I'm on a sabbatical for a for a little while. Well, I, would, I honestly would love to pick your brains about that. I had a friend who who did it, and I tried to explain it to. Um, when I was working in England, that this was a, a thing that happened. Uh, and whilst they were complaining about being given sort of a half day out of school for training, um, yeah, it was it was an amazing thing. Um, I'm just going to check in on Chris. Um, Chris, uh, how, how's it going for you at the moment? Back in school? Actually, um, slightly different. I've uh, changed my... Can you hear me okay? Yep, hear you fine. Yeah, sorry, just wanted to check something. Yeah, um, so I've actually changed a job. I'm, I'm still in teaching on some level, or I'm still in education. Um, I started working three days a week for um, Ambition Institute. So I started yesterday uh, looking at uh, learning design um, as part of their team, and that a couple of days a week, I, that frees me up, I hope, uh, to do a little bit of consultancy relating to reading and curriculum development. And as soon as that dries up, I'm sure I'll be uh, back in school, ideally as a teacher or perhaps um, back as a, as a senior leader again. Who knows? 
Well, you know, that is very exciting stuff. It sounds like going on for everyone. Less so for me. I'm still, you know, well, actually, I say that it is exciting. I'm teaching. I'm now in secondary, though. So I probably best that we set the scene for our kind of experience of where we're at. I'm a primary trained teacher. And, I, you know, I've talked to people about this before. Primary trained in Wales taught all, almost all of my career in England as a primary teacher and, and deputy head, moved back to Wales now to do something slightly different. Um, so that, that kind of sets my perspective. Um, up until now, Chris, you were a, a middle leader and primary teacher as well. Yeah, um, the last kind of three years or so, um, senior leader. Um, but yeah, lots of, effectively, I've been in education or was in education for some, uh, in some form for 15 years. Most of that as a primary school teacher, plenty of that as a middle leader, reading coordinator, etc. And then over the last three years or so, I uh, was a senior le leader focusing on curriculum development, um, professional development for teachers, and I spent some time working with um, initial teacher training providers looking at mathematics as well as evidence-informed reading. Fantastic stuff. And and Rob, um, sort of what's your your background before that, you know, taking advantage of the fantastic training that we, we do get advantage of sometimes in Wales? Uh, what you were in the classroom? Yeah, so um, I'm in the classroom. So I'm a classroom based uh, teacher. Um, and that's what I've done for my whole career, really, for, for 15 years. I haven't really made any uh, enormous steps up the, up the ladder. Um, I spent a, a small stint as an acting deputy head, um, which was a great experience. Um, but, you know, I, I trained in Swansea. I was in Swansea Institute uh, many years ago. And, um, um, yeah, Swansea is one of those places you, you can kind of get stuck. You know, it's such a lovely place to live. And you've got a secure job here. And, you, you know, we've got, as you know, as because you live in Swansea, I believe. Yeah, I do, um, yeah. Uh, we just got a great coastline and just great opportunities to get out and explore. So um, I've sort of been stuck here. Yeah. So don't say stuck. You know, I've come back. You know, I, you know, it's a <laughs> lovely place to be. Um, you know, I think it is a, a lovely place to teach. We'll get on to kind of some some of the other bits and pieces. I will say a lovely coastline. I heard the worst recruitment drive ever whilst I was at um, Swansea training. There were uh, some other um, areas of England were trying to recruit teachers, and there was someone from the South End local authority. Uh, sort of Essex way, who was trying to convince a surfer from Swansea that South End had a coastline and this was a good move for them that they would be able to go there. And I was kind of there going, it's got a pier. I'm not sure it's the same thing as the Gower sort of surfing out there. Um, so, yeah, fantastic. Well, we kind of have our, our breadth across, and this is, you know, something that really interests me because. Estin, the, the 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 equivalent of Ofsted in uh, Wales, uh, um, Ofsted, and and the, certainly the way the education is set up with curriculum for Wales as it's going um, in Wales now, there are slightly different takes on slightly different things, and reading is potentially one of them. Um, but I wanted to start off just talking about where we have come from, where we think reading is as um, a training thing. Now, as I say, I trained in Wales, so maybe some of my um, expectations are, are, per, are from that training. Maybe it would have been the same in England, so I'll go to Chris first. But I don't feel that I was given a lot of support, um, explanation maybe, around reading as a curriculum area, as a taught subject, um, compared to, say, writing in English. It was certainly, I felt, it was more writing-focused, or maths. I, I feel there was a gap there. Um, is that something you recognise, Chris? 
the training that I received, I wouldn't say that um, reading was particularly overlooked in proportion to other things. I did a PGCE, which immediately places quite significant constraints on the amount of time available for the, um, in the, the learning of that sort. I remember, I think I had something like a few lectures and three or four seminars. So five or six or seven hours worth of discussion of what reading could look like in the classroom. I remember also being given letters and sounds as a pack of stuff um, to explain phonics, but no actual requirement to read it or no, and no expectation to read it. So uh, I don't think um, the brevity of the course um, did me any favours in terms of understanding reading. And I think it would be fair to say that I, I don't think that the bits that I was introduced to, and my memory might not be serving me particularly well here, but from my memory, I don't think the bits that I was introduced to were particularly evidence-informed at the time. Okay, and so if I ask Rob the same question then, Rob, um, what was your experience, I guess, of, of training to be a teacher or, or even sort of those early years of being a teacher and the support you were given to do things like phonics, early reading and, and reading comprehension as it went through the school, I guess? Well, at the time um, of training, I, I sort of had great faith in the, in the course I was doing. I did a three-year B.Ed. And the lecturers were great, and I had every confidence in coming out of university that I was prepared to teach reading. Um, but looking back, and I think about the the approaches I was taught about sort of thinking about the context within the sentence to maybe guess at a word if you don't know what that word is, um, and then assessment around sort of miscue analysis where children might be skipping a word, and you know, and, and thinking about those sorts of things, and these running records of having. Um, writing down lots of notes about how the children were reading for assessment. It didn't really prepare me well because I, I entered the classroom and I was, what did I do for that child who was really struggling to read? Um, and it was a case of, well, they, could, they can come to my desk and try and read to me as, as I try and help them decode words. Um, yeah, but I felt very unprepared when I actually hit the classroom of how to actually um, remedy some of the problems that were there. Yeah, and I, you know, um, I, I imagine I was training probably around a similar time in a similar part of the country, and, and possibly that's where some of my experience goes to. If we move to um, sort of talking about where we feel it is now um, in the country, so we're talking 10, 15 years later down the line for each of us, um, you know, I can talk more clearly about where I think it is in England now because obviously my teaching experience moved moved uh, across the border but Chris where do you think um, reading as a sort of teacher's understanding as a, a teachers in general the primary um, body of, of teachers their understanding of the the best way or, or the research informed way to to teach teaching to teach reading sorry obviously um this is limited to my experience of looking at initial teacher training and the schools that I've worked in. Actually, in all fairness, the initial teacher training that I've seen recently and that I've had the good fortune to be involved with has been pretty decent. But um, in terms of, I think, like the, the current state of play in education in England when it comes to reading, I think it's a bit of a mixed bag. I think in theory, a lot of... Um, the focus on phonics um, in England has been welcome, though I think some of the ways that it's been structured and some of the ways that it's been pushed initially might have driven people away 
rather than kind of bringing them in, though I recognise that there may be needed to be a little bit of uh, short, sharp shock, or at least that might have been the original justification for how things were rolled out. I think so. I think in term, in phonics, for example, I think in theory things um, have moved forward. I think in practice, I think there's again just from my own experiences, quite a lot of pretty ropey phonics teaching out there. Despite in many cases the best efforts of the classroom teachers, it often comes down to a lack of information when it, um, with senior leaders, from what I've found. Um, in terms of things like the development of fluency and comprehension, I think this is still somewhat the wild west. I think there is um, a lot of anything goes and teachers are ready to accept anything that sounds relatively simple, relatively plausible, um, and anything that can be uh, sold to them at a decent price. So it's I don't think it's we're in a particularly great position. That said, I do think from what I've seen over the past few years, I do feel like the tide is turning towards something more evidence-informed, something where a bit more collaborative across the profession as well. So, yeah, I hope we're moving in a good direction. And I would, the thing that I would look at of my experience of England and when it comes to reading is it is a, a really kind – it's it's a big budget item, unfortunately, because it requires – Often, you know, most schools will be looking at something like a some kind of phonics scheme, some kind of then phonics books linked to that scheme that then moves up through the school, maybe some kind of, you know, you're talking and to have the books to be able to do that, there's, there's some big money and that then, in my experience, I would say, means that you get kind of a patchwork of different schemes, different bits and pieces that have been bought over years and maybe cobbled together. Would that be fair for me to say, Chris? I think that's true in a lot of cases. I, I think that the, the new kind of, for want of the, the new phonics, the requirement to have a validated phonics program has put a lot of financial pressures on schools. Um, in some cases, no doubt, there are schools that were doing something pretty evidence-informed, pretty sensible that they've had to now, but they've kind of cobbled together, but works because they've got senior leaders who know what they're talking about and school teachers who really know what they're talking about and that they've now had to move to something kind of ready-made. I have to say that there is a part of me that thinks it's all a little, it feels all a little silly to me that we have a government that says, here are 20 different validated phonics approaches and you can now go and buy these things and you can take your pick. So it's kind of, bit of market, but also directing you towards which bits of the market the school should engage with when, and I've had similar conversations with regards to curriculum, it might have been more sensible just to say, as something akin to letters and sounds, here are four or five different phonics programs. We have bought them out from the people who originally created them. Here they are, here they are to, with all their resources intact and you do not need to buy them. So uh, yeah, it does, slightly bother me that we've ended up with this situation where schools are having to pay a fortune when there might have been a more sense sensible centralized option but i think it's fair to say like you say that things in some places are somewhat cobbled together generally though most schools will have something kind of ready-made that can be taught with fidelity um, because of the recent changes 
And, uh, you know, I'm just going to throw into the pot while we're talking about the, the introduction of phonic um, approved phonic schemes, that there was some contention around some of the things put in the guidance for making uh, an approved scheme that came out around some of the things that you could do, couldn't do. There were some sentences in there about not finding letters in sand. And, and there was a little bit of unease, certainly from people reading it outright, that they thought some things were being banned and some things weren't. Um, certainly, um, people have felt maybe in, in that I would say that there's a bit of stringent control, maybe that the government is exerting in the the fact that you have to choose from a selected list. I, I can understand why people would think that. I also understand why the government have gone along those lines. They've, you know, they're trying to enforce some level of accountability um they're trying to enforce the right thing um and i can understand the temptation to do that i i do think that trying to enforce that level of accountability without the requisite understanding behind it for teachers senior leaders etc is a a bit of a it, it might work, but you worry about how that works over the longer term, whether over the longer term, as we've seen with phonics, whether you win the, for want of a better phrase, whether you win hearts and minds, in, and that's something that I feel hasn't been, been done particularly well. If you bring, you know, if you get a school to bring in a approved phonics scheme and they teach you with fidelity, then good stuff. But how long is that going to last? If, for example, the, the teachers behind it and the senior leaders behind it, if you ask them what phonics is, can't give you a, a decent description. They don't understand the rationale behind it. They don't understand that phonics is a part of learning to read and not the whole thing, for example. So, um, yeah, I, I can see where you're coming from there. Yeah, and th but that would be my worry with you know any of these schemes. And my, my background was more as a, a maths leader, but, you know, without people understanding the reason why you are expected to do something, if you are just following rules and instructions because it is the scheme, when people cut corners, because sometimes we do have to as teachers, um, you get that lethal mutation of what are you doing the thing because you've been told you can't put phonics in a sand tray? Or are you, you know, following the, the not the letter of the law, but the the... I forget how, what that phrase is, but it, it, so I think you understand what I mean. You know, you're not um, kind of uh, following the spirit of what it is rather than following the, the the letter of the law. And that's one of the things that does worry me about phonics schemes being introduced without the, you know, the training behind it. Now, I'm going to throw over to Rob because things are a little bit different. Now, Rob, um, if you could just a little explain for us as well, um, I guess briefly what's happening with curriculum for Wales in Wales, because that does put a bit, of another spin on it there is a big curriculum change happening in primary schools in wales well across all schools but primary first at the moment as well so what is the state for you of reading the state of play for reading in wales at the moment well um unlike england where you've got sort of the the reading framework where you had the the rose report in 2006 which was um, accepted by the government and and sort of implemented that all schools were going to follow the sort of simple view of reading model um, in Wales, we, we are still behind that. We're still sort of maybe using what they used in England a long time ago with the searchlights model, with using sort of multi-queuing. Phonics is part of the mixer. But it's again, it's not very clear in Curriculum for Wales about what they mean by phonics. Um, 
it, it's very analytical. They talk about onset and rhyme phonics. They talk about studying the whole word and, and sort of breaking it up into the syllables as a starting point. Um, so it's not as clear as, as what you've got in England where, yes, it's mandated. And it's interesting uh, listening to Chris and, and, and him sort of picking, you know, picking apart some of the problems with, which he encounters there. Um, but I would say that, it, you know, I would... From my point of view, um, sort of England are light years ahead of us here in Wales, where they have followed the science of reading, where they are, you know, it's clearly set out um, what programs should be used, that they are following a synthetic phonics approach or a linguistic phonics approach, and they're not allowing um, all these mixed methods creeping in. Um, and that, that doesn't mean that um, schools are teaching reading badly. You know, there's some absolutely amazing schools out there who are doing it really well but we just don't know either which schools are doing it well because we, we don't have that data in Wales with any sort of testing and you know I know the the phonics screen and check um, is controversial in itself but we don't have something like that in Wales which gives us any data to tell us how well we're doing it and um, so curriculum for Wales it's up to each individual school to decide what they do. Uh, there is complete autonomy. Um, however, some of the statements in the curriculum, you know, the statements are prescriptive and they are actually prescribing some methods which go against what would be recommended in England. Okay, and I think we're going to get into that a little bit more. We are going to go to an ad break, and when we come back from the ad break, um, what we're going to talk about, I get, um, is um, I've got a, a list of different things, um, and really, what I did is I pulled them from my experience of things that people have either told me to do, or I, you know, some of them I think are things that I did. And as a parent now, I have my my son bringing home books from school, and. Um, you know, trying to support in his reading and really under, understanding. But we're going to get quite um, specific, if that's okay. Is that all right, Chris? Yeah, sounds good to me. Um, just, yeah. very, just very right. quickly to know from what um, uh, said before, I definitely take the English approach over what's been described there of what's going on in Wales. Um, yeah, you know, um, I think it, it, it is an interesting um, kind of difference. And we, I, we'll go through that. But as I say, I think it's probably easy if we pick apart really um, exactly um, each of these things kind of into and, and talk about whether they're happening or not, why they're not happening. Um, is that all right, Rob? Yeah, sounds great with me. Yeah. Fantastic. So, oh, sorry, can go I, on. Can I just congratulate Chris on his book as well? Because it's a, it's a fantastic read. And um, if... if you know, he said that he's changed uh, jobs. It would be great if some of that consultancy work can come across to Wales and uh, he can talk to some of the, the, the advisors here. There you go, Chris. Open invite. You know, we've got um, Research Ed Cymru at some point coming coming over here, hopefully. I think, you know, hopefully some of these things can come across. I'm desperate for an in-person kind of teach me over here in Wales. So, yeah, very exciting. Now, we are just going to pop to the, um, the ads first. So we'll see you all on the other side. Are you looking to take your phonics practice forward? Then Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised is the programme for you. Created by two schools with an excellent track record in phonics, Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised will help all children become readers and ensure no child is left behind. The programme offers complete support for your phonics teaching, 
alongside classroom resources and fully decodable readers from Collins Big Cat. To find out more, follow at Letters Sounds on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram or join a free briefing by visiting littlewondelettersandsounds.org.uk. Teachers Talk Radio is delighted to support Winston's Wish, the UK's childhood bereavement charity. Winston's Wish supports children and their families after the death of a parent or sibling. They provide emotional and practical bereavement support. Expert teams also provide online resources, specialist publications and training for professionals. Find out more about Winston's Wish and pledge your support at www.winstonswish.org Live from Swansea, this is The Twilight Show with Nathan Ginn on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out, with Teachers Talk Radio. Hello everyone, welcome to Swansea. Um, I'm here with Christopher Such and Rob Randall. We are talking about reading. Now, welcome back, uh, Rob. Hello. Yeah, still there. And welcome back, Chris. Still here. Thanks, Fantastic. by the way, to Rob for saying so. Saying something nice about my book. Always appreciated. <laughs> yep. Yeah. You know, I, I always try and say, I'll give it a proper plug, The Art and Science of Teaching Primary Reading. And I, ha- I have complained before about, you know, giving books incredibly long names, uh, Chris. So next one, a bit shorter. That's all right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I get that. Yeah, fantastic. Now, I did say um, we were going to pick into kind of um, uh, some real nitty gritty of bits and pieces. Now we better set the scene first of all and deal with it. Some of this I get is, is kind of working up. Um, what are we talking about when we uh, say we are teaching phonics? So um, Chris, if you want to start off and then we'll, we'll go to Rob and see if there's any kind of Welsh twist there of what is happening in Wales compared to what um, we're talking about when we're talking about the teaching of phonics. And so, um, presumably talking about the English language in this case, it would uh, be uh, wrong of me perhaps not to mention that, given that we're talking about um, England, uh, Welsh schools as well as English schools. But um, effectively, the teaching of phonics is an introduction to the code knowledge, so the knowledge of um, correspondences between sounds and spellings, in particular uh, phonemes and graphemes, and the skills of how to use um, those correspondences. So a correspondence might be something like um, the rep- representing the sh sound with the letters sh. So what a phoneme and a grapheme be representing that phoneme, and then the skills of how to use that. So for example, in a word like shop, um, the sounds sh or need to be blended together. So we have phonemic skills that um, tell us how to use a bit of code knowledge. Now phonics is teaching those two things. From there, it's an introduction to um, that, the code and the skills of how to use that code that is um, incredibly useful for and uh, the vast majority of those who learn to read. 
And, um, it, you know, in its application, certainly in England, in uh, primary school settings, we're talking about probably daily sessions of maybe, you know, 20 to 30 minutes in year R, year one, possibly, you know, year two, as well as it flows through. That would be, you know, if someone said, I've been in a phonics lesson, or I have to teach a phonics, it would be that that they're talking about. Yeah, it's very likely that you'd be talking about a whole class teaching session, though obviously different schools sometimes do things in different ways where they maybe split a class in half or even work perhaps with um, smaller groups than that, Depend, uh, particularly in schools that have you know mixed classrooms, um, mixed age classrooms, I should say. Um, but yeah, it's, um, it's usually whole class teaching sessions between kind of the shortest ones I've seen are sometimes kind of like 15 minutes. The longest I've seen are kind of 45 minutes, but an average is kind of 20, 30 minutes. And in most cases, that's um, every day across the school week. And it lasts into, uh, at the very least, and it lasts into the end of year one. My preference is that phonics teaching continues considerably after that, though. Fantastic. Now, Rob, I'm going to throw over to you. Did you have anything to add there? If I, you know, when we're talking about phonics, what is it we're talking about? No, I, th I think we've got the same understanding in Wales. That is how the um, sort of units of sound map onto the, the letters um, used to represent them. Um, so I think we're in agreement, Wales and England, on that. It's just these starting points and how you get going with that um, from reception. And, you know, when do we introduce letters? Um, do we start with the smallest units of sound? Um, and what other sort of strategies are introduced there? Are there any other sort of... Um, things creeping in, you know, looking at the pictures, you know, looking, guessing yeah. from context, those sorts of things happening as well. But on the whole, Fantastic. I think we agree on what phonics is. Okay, um, so that makes it sound like learning to read is an incredibly simple thing, very formulaic. You know, I like that, very mathematic, and I'm taking on the role of the, you know, the the non-expert here because you know, obviously, one of us has to be the non-expert to to move the conversation along. It sounds very simple. So, if you know, if it is that simple as breaking apart words into their constituent parts and putting them back together, why is reading difficult? Well, why is reading English? difficult so i'll ask that to chris first well firstly because this um recognizing of words um is only one com one component of reading um it's a key component but it's only one component of reading that is partnered by and over time integrated with uh, language comprehension but even if we're just focusing on the word recognition side of things one of the reasons why it is so exceptionally difficult to learn to recognize words, decode words in English, is because of the complexity of those correspondences between, um, between uh, phonemes and graphemes, between those sounds and spellings. English, the, the, the phrase that's used to describe this most commonly is orthographic depth. Um, English has an exceptionally deep orthography. In this case, orthography just means that the spelling system that we use. And a deep orthography, such as English, is one where the individual sounds can be represented by many different letters, and that one um, letter or set of letters can represent many different sounds. So a good example of that might be that um, the letter A can represent the sound A or A or A, etc, etc. Um, and this is part of the reason that makes learning to decode so difficult in English. Whereas in other languages, many other languages, in fact, this 
these mappings are much more consistent and they, these are languages that are said to have a shallow orthography. And some of this is because um, of just the way that the English language has developed. We've had waves of um, different peoples from the, the Normans uh, bringing some French elements to it, to the typesetters of, of the, first, you know, Flemish typesetters when the first printing presses came through, layering on different uh, um language elements onto our, our spellings and we've picked up words from different places um, throughout the British Empire at times, right? Yeah, that's that's exactly the case. It's the kind of the history of our language. Alongside that, there have been uh, shifts in how words are pronounced in different parts of the world. So even where people say, well, why don't we just rip it up and start again and have, you know, there are roughly, depending on accent, 44 different phonemes in English. Let's just make 44 different symbols and map them out. Well, even that's not going to work because different accents will pronounce things in different ways. So yeah, it, it comes down to the history and the complexity of the English language itself. Fantastic. Now, um, Rob, did you have anything to add there about, you know, why you think um, this is such a, you know, we're dedicating a lot of time to thinking about reading, to thinking about getting it right. Is it that it, it seems overly simplistic? Is it that we're um, layman's in it, that we're not, we're not taking the right approach? Why is reading such a, a difficult thing to crack? I think it, it's down to the understanding of this logic, as Chris was saying, about how these sounds map onto the, the letters and map onto the, yeah, the letters that represent them. And, you know, talking about English where there's, you know, there's roughly 175 um, common spellings for those 44 sounds. If, if we compare that to Welsh, where there's actually 29 letters to use in the alphabet, um, there's sort of roughly 37 sounds in Welsh compared to 44, but then there's only 48 spellings for those sounds. So it's, you know, it's far fewer than those 175 that we have in English that we have to teach in a systematic way. Um, I will add on um, the, the point that I found, um, you know, and I, this comes to some of the um, pronunciation bits, the accent bits that Chris talked about. I found teaching, uh, reading and spelling in South Wales particularly difficult because of my own accent being mapped then onto someone else's accent. Um, and, you know, so th there are other, you know, there is accent in there. There is the history of the words in there. There is this, this is, you know, the phonics level of it is incredibly complicated i guess um but then as chris said we, we take it further and an understanding of how you get better at reading so i'm going to run through some of the things that are you know have been thrown up before by other people in my own time people maybe if they're helping their kids to read they might have been told to do this and if we're picking them up there teachers will be particularly you know i'm a pgc myself as well it's not a lot of time to train so i have you naturally brought some of the things that I've were, were taught to me, you know, through, you know, the, the things linger. So I'm going to run off with one of the first things um, that, you know, we, we, that comes up often, which is, and I know uh, Rob's kind of mentioned this already, but that's sight words, sometimes called non-decodable uh, or high frequency words. I've got a list of them in my son's backpack from school. Um, he has a book with no words in it and a, a page of sight words that he has to memorize. Um, Chris, what are sight words? Why are they used? What are the, the benefits, the negatives of this approach? Of all the areas in phonics and the research evidence uh, around 
um, early reading. I think sight words is some of the most interesting and it really gets to the heart of some of the contradictions around the ways that children can be taught. Um, generally speaking, if someone said, what's your very brief answer about sight words? I'd just say, don't teach them. Don't, don't, don't. We want to, from the very beginning, we want to be referring wherever possible to the, the sounds that are represented within words. And that's, you know, that's the kind of the dead simple answer. That said, if we dig into kind of the, you know, the phonics programs that have proved successful, some of the phonics programs that are used as, you know, a, a battering ram for saying how powerful systematic phonics is, many of them begin with some teaching of um, some so what we might call sight words alongside the teaching of sound spelling correspondences. So children, when they come across a word like the, might just be introduced to the, and the teacher might just say, this word is the, say the here. And that's where it's left for a, a period of time. That isn't terribly problematic if either there and then or later on, children are sensitized to the idea that there are sounds being represented within that word but we will come to them later on down in the later in the learning journey. It isn't just left as this is a way to learn words. The key thing about sight words is that if they become embedded as a way of children attempting to read words and embedded as a way of us attempting to teach words, then that's going to be incredibly problematic. That, but as I say, a few sight words as an introduction, there's no hard... Um, empirical evidence in terms of applied research to say that a few sight words is definitely a terrible thing but if in doubt they're certainly not something i would advocate at any stage but that said i think if in doubt like avoiding teaching words as whole units is probably for the best okay uh, rob what are your thoughts and feelings on sight words or um you know non-decodable although they're that's not strictly true. Um, th those lists of words of memorized words. Yeah. So as Chris said, they're just um, you know you go, you're going to have to introduce some early, but they're they're tricky words. They're just um, words that uh, children haven't encountered the code to yet, or they haven't been taught um, that these are the letters that represent those sounds. And because they are frequently occurring words, you need you know they they're going to hold sentences together. So the word like the, the word he, you know, they're going to come up a lot. That doesn't mean, you know, you can teach a tricky word like he and just say, well, here the E represents, you know, E rather than, you know, eh. Um, uh, so, so um, the, you know, the tricky words that, that crop up, they're not, they're not high frequency words where children have to learn them by sight and have these lists being sent home, you know, to go home and have them as flashcard routines to, to say these words off as soon as they see them. Um, and this is what is in the Welsh curriculum, um, that progression step one. So we're talking about this is the step that they should be at at age five, is that they're beginning to recognise and read high-frequency words. Now, the, the Curriculum for Wales makes no attempt to um, really define how we teach those high-frequency words or what exactly they mean by that. When in England, they have that clarity about what is meant by high-frequency words, that they've been practised, they've been read lots of times, they become orthographically mapped or you know, they're in the child's long-term memory so they see them straight away and, and can read them. But that's after lots of practice of decoding the word. Now, in the Welsh curriculum, are you supported by, a, are you given a list of words or is it, yeah. is it? 
you know, in the English curriculum, all I, I do, the reason I ask is that there you, there are lists and lists in appendices appendices of of words that people would use. Is that something that appears in curriculum for Wales? There's, I'm not aware of there being any lists. So I, I, I wasn't certain that there were any in England either. Now I thought, I'm sure they were part of the um, the old sort of literacy strategies in England. I'm not sure if Chris can answer that one. Whether they're still part of the, the, the approach there. I wonder now, you're making me double think. Chris, can you help out? Uh, good question. Um, as far as I'm aware, there are, there is no particular expectation for children to be introduced to words as sight words in the English curriculum. However, that said, there is an expectation that they will know those words, if, if that makes sense. I'm pretty sure there is a, a list of words themselves, but the idea that they'll be introduced as sight words as such is... Uh, uh, is, is I would imagine, as far as I'm aware, not a thing. A couple of points to make on sight words on top of what's been said already is that one of the most frustrating things is when children take home that list of words and on it are words like it and on, which are absolutely covered by the, um, the earliest bits of the code that children will learn. I think what's particularly problematic about the, um, the way that you've described with your child taking home a long list of sight words before they've potentially, by the sounds of things, been introduced to chunks of the code or at least reading chunks of the code from decodable books is that I think there's a danger there of embedding whole word recognition as, um, uh, as their way of attempting to decode words rather than trying to identify the sounds that are being represented. Yeah, I mean, I'm an absolute nightmare. I went through and put sound buttons underneath some of these words and, and such like, because, you know, that's why I'm not allowed at parents' evenings anymore. Unfortunately, you know, I, I joke, I am still allowed at parents' evenings. Um, but um, so that, that gives us an idea around these sight words, where the problems are with them, if you become over-reliant on them, if you're not using, would you call that a, a top-down phonics approach where you're going back to them once you understand the code, Chris? Well, yeah, a top-down phonics approach tends to involve, um, so like analytic phonics or an analogy phonics tends to involve, yeah, learning th that set of words and like, like you say, then going back to them and going, oh, okay, so you know the word cop, let's look at the uh, cop, what, and we know the word cow, say, let's look at the first letter that's within though, in, within both of those. Oh, can you see that in both cases, we've got the k sound, for example. So yeah, it's kind of a top-down approach there are plenty of academics out there who will say to you that the um, the evidence comparing um, analytic phonics approaches and synthetic phonics approaches isn't overwhelming one way or another. But I think there's personally, I think there's enough to suggest that our best bet is certainly synthetic phonics at this point. Okay, we're going to go on to our next one and see where we sit. I think there maybe might be a divide at this point between what's actually happening in the classroom and what our opinions are about it in England and Wales. But the next one on my list is picture clues. Now, I have seen this, and I, I can't remember exactly where it came from. I think it might have been from a, a Canadian approach or an American approach. Um, but it was about seeing a the word horse, possibly, with a picture of a horse and saying pony, and that being an okay answer. Um, when the word is nothing like it. Um, so using a picture clue to to, to fill in a gap. Um, how do you feel about that, Christopher? When children are learning to decode, the idea of them 
being encouraged to do to to look at the pictures instead feels to me like a um a crutch and not a not a useful crutch it's not like the stabilizers on the bike that eventually come off you are teaching them something that is not is preventing them from learning the sound spelling correspondences and skills that their reading over the longer term is going to rely on so while I love picture books and I absolutely love exploring the pictures that are in books with children, encouraging children to use that as a means of working out words is, um, I don't think, a particularly good idea. And I think um, most people interested in reading research would agree with that. Okay, Rob, your thoughts? Yeah, I completely agree. Um, sort of, it's a nonsense to think that, you know, the children are going to lift that word off the page by looking at the picture to, su to support them to do that. It just goes against the whole logic of how our writing system works. Um, but saying that, you know, if, if the child can lift the word, of course, you know, lift the word off the page, of course, uh, pictures can be used to sort of find out the meaning of that word. You know, you, if, if they can um, blend those sounds together and, and lift that word and, and say that word um, and they don't know what it means, um, you know, they might have clues there to, to help them with meaning, um, but we don't use those pictures to, to decode that word. Fantastic. So, you, you know, if I gave an example of, you know, I'm reading a book and it's got, it says platypus, I can phonetically read, I can I can decode the word platypus and then I can see a picture of what an out of platypus. That aids my understanding as opposed to aiding my, my the, the, the process of reading the word. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if, if a child's never seen platypus before, they see it in a non-fiction book. Um, it's great, isn't it, that they've that that that's what we want from reading anyway, isn't it? That they're gaining knowledge from what they read. They're learning from what they're they're picking up off the page. Fantastic. Right now, I'm going to put another one in here that probably feels it sits the same kind of way. But this is something that certainly I, as a child, I think was was told to do, which is context clues, which is I read around the word. And then I try and work out, I try and guess what the word is in the middle. Um, how do you sit with that as an approach, Chris? You can see where it's come from, can't you? Because, you know, if you're, let's say you've come to a sentence that says something like, um, I, I, I read the book. To know once you've been, once you can you've developed enough of the you know coding skills to look at a word like read or read and and think oh well that's there's two possibilities for that word either read or read and then you look at the surrounding context of the sentences and you think about the context of what's going on in order to recognise whether you're talking about the present tense or the past tense verb you suddenly think, oh, well, yeah, context is definitely useful here in, to some extent in helping me to work out exactly what word that is. But that is quite far down the line of comprehension. In terms of kind of initial like word attack, working out what's going on with the word, um, so what we're kind of teaching in the earliest phases of reading, that use of context clues usually equates to, well, don't bother decoding it. Let's see if we can work out effectively through guessing what it might be, which is obviously um counterproductive um now rob these are still you know when we talk about picture clues when we talk about context clues are they still things that are suggested you said that in wales there was a more mixed approach towards reading is are these things that happen yeah so it's certainly um sort of ambiguous in the curriculum um so once i've you know i've addressed this before in um sort of my own sort of setting about how 
children shouldn't be using the pictures to, to guess at words and the context. And then the, the sort of comeback from, you know, from leadership in a way is, um, well, it's in the literacy framework because that's, that's what's written down, that children are going to use context and, and picture cues to, um, to read these words. So that, you know, I'm just looking at progression step one now, and it says, although it does say, you know, it's a bit clearer in the new curriculum, it says I can use context and pictures to help me understand what I read. You know, I really hope that um, the profession in Wales, you know, look deeply at that, and it says it's going to help me understand what I read rather than to actually decode the words on the page. Um, so I think there's a little bit of amb ambiguity in the new curriculum. But it, yeah, because uh, that does sound better than what it was before. That does sound a little bit, as you say, that there's a room there for for someone. Because what it sounds like is to me is the these picture clues, these um, context clues are a, a far higher level reading skill that you know a, a more fluent reader would be able to use to help maybe with comprehension than someone learning to read an early reader would be able to use to help them develop their actual reading skill so you know from the from the beginning we want to make sure that we are giving children that vocabulary and we are discussing pictures and we are discussing the book but i think the, the main priority at the beginning is getting them to understand the logic of the the alphabetic code and to to um say the sounds and listen for the word and to read the words and that's going to be you know not very you know it's going to it's not going to be very fluent at the beginning, but we certainly don't want, you know, we can still, after we've read through a book, have a look at the pictures, discuss the story, um, but we're not using those clues um, to read, uh, to lift the words off the page. Okay. Now I'm going to throw this next out there. This one might sound like it is a more English focused thing because I know, you know, there is an idea that alien words, non-words appeared um, along with the year one phonics screening test. I remember them existing before as part of Letters and Sounds. I'm sure there was that pirate game that existed and that was part of Letters and Sounds where you had to put them in different barrels. But so if we are learning to use a phonic code, um, does practicing it with any word, including what are in England often called alien words, um, is that helpful, Chris? I think first thing to note is I, unless I'm, I could be mistaken about this, but I suspect that the whole, I, I remember doing the pirate game. I remember being in yeah. um, either reception or year one as um, a teacher long ago, um, and it would have been reception thinking about it. And that is, that was from a particular website. I don't think that that was kind of like directly affiliated with the DFE produced letters and sounds kind of documentation. It was something that kind of, got attached onto it. I could be wrong about that. I could be wrong about that, but I've always assumed maybe it's just me giving the DFE the benefit of the doubt because it doesn't uh, strike me as a particularly sensible uh, thing to do. In terms of teaching alien words or introducing children to lots and lots of different words as a day-to-day -day part of your teaching, words that don't actually exist, I don't think that's a particularly sensible idea. Um, that said, I think as a way of attempting to assess children's um, understanding of code knowledge and the skills required to use that code knowledge, alien words or nonsense words, whatever they're sometimes called, um, are a perfectly sensible way to, to make that assessment happen. Yeah, I, I, I'm going to put my stool out there on this one because I hated it 
as a thing when I was teaching because I would always find it would always come up with something like uh, dram and the kids be that's not a real word I go no yeah no actually it is you've just never heard of it and and so it's incredibly kind of frustrating in that sense when it, when it goes down that route of sorting what what are real words and not real words um, I used to hate that I, I certainly will say yeah Diane um, McGuinness in her seminal book um should really use that word uh but her excellent book early reading instruction um mentions uh, in particular a little bit of research that i'm struggling to remember the um, the name of uh, the authors now that suggested that um approaches where children this is more about spelling but you can, you can see how it's related um how approaches that involve showing children correct versions of words and incorrect versions of words actually leads to issues over the longer term in that children still remember the incorrect version. You think it's going to highlight the correct version when in fact all it does is add to the confusion. So I think the idea of that being a, a sensible idea further down the school, because this is essentially what can happen when you see these alien words being taught as a, on a day-to-day basis. Um, yeah, I, I think there's uh, it's strongly suggested, I would strongly suggest that that's not a good idea. Okay, now, Rob, because you don't have the phonics screening check, where these words often exist now, um, do, do people, are alien words a thing in phonics teaching in Wales, in, in Wales as a whole? They might be. If, if you know, schools may be using them as sort of their internal assessment um, you know, to, to check for decoding ability. Um, but there's nothing mandated, so there's nothing, there's no sort of, assessment which schools have to undertake that includes these um, so we have we tend to just have the the personalized assessments at the end of the year which have been cancelled over the past couple um, due to uh, covid but, um, which tend to test just for comprehension really um, of course you get a, you get a picture of what their reading ability is like from those tests but and then you can delve deeper into whether it is coming down to decoding problems or comprehension issues um, but no, there's there's nothing um, from the top uh, saying that we should be doing any sort of phonic screening testing. Okay, um, now I'm going on to one of my favourite ones, and I, I honestly love this, but I think I love it as an adult. I'm not sure how useful it is when I drone on to children about it, and that's etymology and sort of where words come from. They're Greek and Latin, and you know, one of my favourite things to talk about is um, in Swansea. Uh, particularly seeing that you know i'm sat here uh, we know the vikings were here because the worm's head which is out on the gower a big rock is um worm is the the viking word for um dragon not uh or, you know a sea monster there not a worm in the ground not a soil worm so we know that word has migrated into language we even know swansea's got nothing to do with swans or the sea you know it's swain's eye and swain was a, a viking hero of myth and so we know these things exist, and I find that incredibly interesting. I'm not sure whether that's useful when I'm teaching, but at times I've been told to, you know, I've had a, a root word of the week to, to to drill to the children. Is that a useful way to go, you know, once we're on past phonics, are we going to root words? Are we taking larger chunks of words? Um, Chris? 
I think looking at um, chunks of words, be they morphemes, so the smallest units of meaning within words, things like un and ing and dis, I, I think is really valuable um, and an essential part of, the, of, of teaching reading well. Um, I think etymology kind of links into that. And personally, I, I think it's a really useful um, way of teaching aspects of spelling. I, I like the phrase over, and, and dare I say, anything that teaches children to spell is also supporting their reading. I dare say that um, the teaching of etymology is something that is most beneficial as children get a little bit older. But what I, what I like most is this idea of supporting children to be word detectives, the idea of giving them a sense. I, I think reading, a lot of it is about empowerment and the feeling that you get from beginning to understand root words, from beginning to understand morphemes, and to be able to apply them is a sense of empowerment, a sense that this language is yours to understand um and so yeah I'm, I'm, I'm all about root words personally in particular i found when i've learned them latin and greek root words to be the most useful because they're most likely to apply to the sort of words that children are less likely to understand so if we look at kind of um, anglo-saxon roots for example and uh, scandinavian roots for words in english it tends to be stuff where i think oh yeah well Children are going to know what that word means. <laughs> They're going to know what that word means anyway. There are exceptions, but generally that's the case. Whereas it's the kind of Latin and Greek stuff that's crept into the science science vocabulary, mathematical vocabulary, et cetera, et cetera, that um, I think is most empowering to teach and is most supportive of uh, developing children's vocabulary over the longer term. And, uh, you know, I would throw into that that I, I've not been adverse to pointing out to children in 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 primary school that they can probably chunk, cut, break apart the word anti-disestablishmentarianism as a massively long word. Because if you understand the component parts and a little bit of history around what it is, even a long word like that is decodable. Is that the right word? Yeah, there's a lot of history to unpick with that one. <laughs> yeah. But as far as sort of understanding it as a, as a word, you can start to go, okay, anti makes sense, the disestablish. Okay, I can start putting these things together because there's an understanding there. Yeah. Now, Sorry. Rob, I'm going to throw over to you. That's okay. Um, is etymology a thing as part of the, the Welsh curriculum um, and sort of the teaching of Wales? Do you, is that something that's expected of them? Yeah, I, I think it crops up. I mean, there's so many statements in the curriculum documents here now. It's such a massive document, uh, full curriculum for Wales. But I'm, I'm sure I've read etymology in there, and that is something that should be covered in within one of the progression steps or within the literacy framework. Um, yeah, so it's great. And I think uh, that side of it, we've got, well, you know, the reading for pleasure, etymology, teacher morphology, you know, all of those great things that language gives us. Um, that's covered well in curriculum for Wales. It's just these initial stages, the initial um, early reading teaching. Um, that's where I have my sort of main gripes, really. So it's how they sort of how they get there. You just kind of everyone kind of just muddle, muddles along, or you know, you kind of hit and miss, and and somehow you get to read. There's no, I don't want to use the word systematic about systematic phonics, but there's no si systematic approach to it in Wales to to get there. Yeah, so we're not sort of building up to that point. And I, you know, I feel that, that I'm not sure how other teachers across the country feel on this, but I feel um, as an upper Key Stage 2 teacher that 
the gap is absolutely massive now um, within within the class. I've got you know there, there's some children who who are struggling to to blend CVC words together, you know, really short words, um, and then there's others who are really picking words apart and thinking about what you know. Chris is talking about the, the Latin and the Greek meanings and, and where they've come from. Um, so we, we've got huge gaps within classrooms between the, the top and the, I don't like to say it, but the bot, bottom um, of where they are in the, in the progression of things. And do you think that is due to exposure, to chance, to support? Is it just pot luck? Is there any pattern to that? There's, you know, there's so many things to unpick with the system here in Wales, whether it's down to initial teacher training, um, just not, you know, like myself and yourself, sort of not really having the, the being taught, you know, the, the, the logic of how, how the written system works in, in our teacher training and how to go into the classroom and teach that really well. And, to, and then to have, um, to have those systematic syn synthetic programs that build through those initial stages and then to have those schemes then afterwards which we can get into the really great stuff isn't it of the, the really detailed things about where where the words have come from and where they've crept in from other nations and other countries yeah, yeah fantastic we, we, we haven't got that systematic approach um rob i think it's just coming through there that you're just a little bit quiet are you able to just move just a little closer to your your microphone yeah it's a little bit better yeah, I think that that might be a little bit better there. Or, or just, you know, shout if you need to, as long as there's no kids okay. in bed or you're not going to annoy the neighbours, um, because that's really interesting stuff coming through. Um, now, um, I wanted to check on the last one before we do go to the news, and this is one that always crops up for me, and I, I just don't understand. And my, you know, um, words that are exposure to Rick's vocabulary, I would say this is. But if I'm taking a systematic approach, I have no control over the fact that my son wants to read a book with the word Tyrannosaurus in it or Pterodactyl. You know, but in maths, in, in geography, to some extent, there is some control. Reading and the language exists everywhere, you know, around us. Um, is that a problem that they are experiencing other words or bigger words before their time, Chris? I don't think it is, honestly. Um, I think there is an extent to which, at the very beginning of the learning journey, we want children to practice the sound spelling correspondences that they have learned in terms of their own decoding. I've seen time and again struggling readers lose confidence because they're encountering half the words, sorry, half the words they encounter are ones they simply don't have the knowledge to decode. So I think while treading carefully at the start of the learning journey in particular, in particular to ensure children aren't gaining bad habits, that they aren't losing confidence through the use of them decoding decodable books is a really valuable thing. But they can still, at that point, have wonderful, complex, rich books read to them and shared with them. But I think as soon as um, children are reaching a certain level of um, decoding ability, generally towards the end of year one, though with some children considerably earlier than that, I think allowing children to start kind of the reverse process, start learning English orthography from what they read, start building up a greater understanding of uh, the patterns in the English language through the difficult, through the challenging stuff that they read, isn't just... A good thing I think it's utterly necessary and I think that the, over the longer term the development of fluency relies on children 
beginning what David Share called kind of like self-teaching through the, these exposures to words that they know the pronunciation of in their head, perhaps, but that they don't know um, yet until they encounter it, the spelling of. Now, um, Rob, we've, we've already talked about, you know, love for reading exists um, in the curriculum for Wales, you know, this kind of um, high expectations, um, this breadth across curricular reading exists there. Um, where do you fit, sit then with this idea? If you're saying that there isn't a systematic approach to it, do we need to control that more? Or is it just that matter that we need to fill the gap first at the very earliest stages? So there's an, there's an issue right at the beginning with uh, the new curriculum where um, they, they talk about a systematic approach with phonological and phonemic awareness, but they want this to be done systematically originally or before phonics is introduced. So phonics really meaning how those, um, how those phonemes map onto the graphemes. Um, so we're going to do lots of um, rhyming, lots of breaking words into syllables, all this uh, phonological development in a systematic way, and then we're going to sort of whittle it down until they can start segmenting words into the phonemes, and then then they're going to be ready for phonics. So this idea that we've got this long, drawn-out process of introducing phonics or um, and letters, you know, how the sound spelling correspondences work. This doesn't start necessarily in reception. This could like it would in England, where it says in the reading framework that uh, phonics is going to start there at reception. Um, so it's up to each school to decide, really, when does phonics begin, when does that instruction begin? It's, it's up to any school. Um, I, I'm not sure how many primaries that primary schools there are in Wales, um, but every I think there's about 1,200. But everyone could be starting starting at a different point. And then there's a well, you know, there's Welsh language schools as well, which won't be starting English instruction until year three. Wow. Okay. Now we are going to pop to the news quickly. Um, when we come back, I want to talk about reading comprehension, if that's all right with both of you. I know Chris has brought it up just briefly. We have focused a lot on those really early stages, but I wanted to get in a little bit. We wouldn't be talking about reading if we weren't talking about sort of the understanding as well. Are you okay to stick around, Chris? I am indeed. Fantastic. And Rob? Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. Well, we will head to the news and we will see you all on the other side when we're going to talk a little bit about reading comprehension. See you when we get back. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. A variety of mitigations are in place in schools across the UK as fears of COVID remain high. In England, secondary pupils will have to wear face coverings in classrooms, as well as communal areas, but staff will not be expected to wear a mask while teaching. Education Secretary Nadim Sahawi is taking advice in case of mass staff absence. Schools in England are also required to keep hygiene and ventilation measures in place. In Wales, all staff and pupils have been expected to wear a mask indoors in secondary schools since the end of November. The start of the new term has also been delayed until the 10th of January to give schools time to prepare and secondary pupils will be expected to take a lateral flow test three times a week. 
the Welsh Government has also lowered the self-isolation period from 10 to 7 days if the person has a negative test on the 7th day. In Scotland, pupils and staff have been required to wear face coverings in secondary schools since the second lockdown. Staggered start times, one-way systems, restrictions on assemblies and twice-weekly testing are also present in schools in Scotland. People in Scotland must isolate for 10 days when they or someone in their household tests positive for COVID. In Northern Ireland, children must remain at home if they develop symptoms until they have a negative result. Pupils must also test twice a week. Staff and secondary school pupils must also wear a mask while on site. This has been your daily education news briefing with Gail Glenn. Live from Swansea, this is The Twilight Show with Nathan Ginn on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Hello everyone, welcome to Swansea, welcome to The Twilight Show on Teachers Talk Radio with me, Nathan Ginn. I'm here with Christopher Such, with Rob Randall. We have been talking about early reading, um, talking about the, the kind of nitty gritty of all the different component parts and how they're slightly different in Wales and in England and, and the kind of expectations around them, that systematic approach to getting ch- children reading. Um, now, uh, welcome back, Chris. Just checking you're still with us. Yep, I'm still here. And Rob, how are we doing? Still here? Oh, panicked me a little bit there. Oh, let me just unmute you there, Rob. I think that was me muting you during the news. Still there, Rob? I'm still here, yeah. Can you hear me? Yep, I can. I can hear you now. I forgot that I, I muted your mic during the news there for you, and I forgot to unmute you. So that is entirely my fault. Um, now, I did say I wanted to talk a little bit, and we have been talking a lot. So, we, you know, this is going to have to be a brief little, you know, 10, 15 minutes for us about um, what we want children to be able to do from reading. We talk a lot about reading comprehension, and within that, we talk a lot, uh, in my experience, about inference. Um what do we want children to be able to independently reading? What, what do we want it to be able to do in the end? And I'll throw to Rob first. Yeah, I, I, the main goal, isn't it, that they can um, learn to read and then read to learn um, and that they can increase their knowledge from just, there's so much information in books. It's the, the whole reason we have our writing system so we can record information that it never gets lost and we can take ourselves beyond our own experiences um so if we can get children reading they they can just access a just this there's a whole world there isn't there within books within literature that is just so vast i mean it's you could it'd be impossible to read everything i think in the, in the world so there's so much there to get stuck into once you can read well now i'm going to pin you down because that's quite a utilitarian approach i would say to, to reading that's you know consuming information my experience in england at least is that i found certainly it was inference heavy which suggests 
more literacy than language. So I'm going to throw to Chris and see, you know, is, you know, are we hammering on about inference in England? Um, we, we, we are to an extent. Um, and in fact, far too commonly, we are misinterpreting what inference is and then kind of misaligning our teaching. I'd just like to say, in all fairness to Rob, I think he did talk about uh, kind of like the, the joys of exploring the world through reading and constructing meaning as well. So I don't think he was entirely focused on the utility. I think he was also, I think he also got the joy of reading in there yeah. as well. Um, thinking about um, inference stuff, I think the issue, like if I, if I was, um, if I had taught a lesson and I look back on that lesson and what I'd done with the children was we'd explored a text and a lot of the time that we had spent exploring that text had involved us doing lots of inferring. We had been, you know, looking at the way that the our background knowledge and the vocabulary in the text interacted so that we could, you know, take meaning from it that wasn't explicitly there on the page. And if someone then said to me, well, what did you do that lesson? And I said, oh, actually, we've been, we've been doing, we actually did quite a lot of inferring. I don't think that's problematic. That is, it's certainly a part of, reading the problem comes when we start to see inference as this like generic separate skill so if i for example came away from that lesson thinking oh great i have definitely supported children to infer with complete in books that have completely different sets of words completely different requirements for background knowledge that's not what we've done there as soon as we start seeing inference as this separate discrete generic skill then uh, we're probably uh, barking up the wrong tree in terms of our reading planning and in terms of how we're directing our efforts in classrooms. Sadly, I think this idea of teaching inference amongst other things as like a generic reading comprehension skill is still surprisingly common. Yeah, and I, you know, I have certainly, you know, within the past five years, been in um, reading lessons or been advised to deliver reading lessons where there is a, you know, this lesson you are focusing on um, inference, this lesson you are fo focusing on recalling facts, you know, as as separate things. So you're saying that that that's not not an approach that works, or it's it's not the whole of the. The, the, the thing it's not effective yeah well the idea of trying to target inference as it's as a thing on its own well it when you learn to infer you are doing so by building up your vocabulary vocabulary building up your knowledge of the world building up the your knowledge of the kind of the, the different expectations that you might have from a humorous fiction text or the expectations that you might have of a um, information text you are learning things that are effectively your development of your comprehension of language and the way that they interact allows you to infer you're not le learning inference as this as it's as this own thing i think one of the real problems that comes from it really though is that in practice when teachers say oh i'm teaching inference or oh i'm teaching prediction what they mean is I'm getting children to do a little bit of reading and then I'm getting them to answer lots of inference questions, which is effectively assessment. It isn't teaching um, or it isn't. A, it, it is teaching, but it's there's not enough of a focus on the reading. I have no problem with there being some assessment, of course, and some answering of questions and some writing, of course, can be beneficial. But there's just far too much of a focus on what is effectively assessment, particularly when it comes to the, uh, teachers' understanding of inference. 
and I would rec—I would say I recognise that a lot because I, you know, I have even to the point heard it or you know been described to me as you know as you described you say there you know there'll be a couple of vocabulary questions you know we on on the test so we're going to do some work on a lesson on vocabulary where we then answer some mock vocabulary questions as they would appear in some format of test and that that is what we're doing which is something different for me that's almost a a test prep and the only reason it exists as a vocabulary question as opposed to a inference question which in theory i guess some things could be a number of things is because someone decided in a mark scheme somewhere that we've deconstructed to become a series of lessons yeah, I mean, actually, vocabulary makes it so clear how absurd this idea of generic skills are, because you do have a situation where we say, oh, well, you know, there are going to be vocabulary questions in the test. So let's do some vocabulary lessons. Well, in your vocabulary lessons, if the children learn 15 words, well, if those words come up on the test, well, you're very lucky. But that's you. all you've learned is those 15 words. And it's, it's great. Learning words is great. But the idea that then that is somehow going to translate to children doing well on vocabulary questions, in inverted commas, on a test. Well, if they don't know the words, that when the test comes up, it doesn't matter how many vocabulary lessons you've done. Um, I'm going to throw back over to Rob just so he can you you can swing either way here, and I, you know I'm not sure which way I'm 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 imagining it. I'm hoping that you're going to tell us that there is you know over the border this beautiful world where we are enjoying the the, the intricacies and the depths of books without direct vocabulary lessons to pass and NFER or other tests are available. Um, how does the does does that comprehension? skills which i know like is a problematic term as well uh, how does that work um in in schools in wales or in your experience rob i really wish i could jump in here and say something really positive about we're doing it so well here in wales after being you know negative the whole way through about our system but I, you know there are some things we do well i think the reading for pleasure stuff you know and our promotion of reading for meaning meaning is done really well here but um we, I think we see uh, inference, as Chris was saying, that we see it in Wales as being this generic skill. Um, you know, one of the progression steps in the new curriculum is I can use inference and deduction to understand text, and I can consider the reliability of what I read. Now, that whole statement is dependent on background knowledge. Um, if a child's reading about something that they've not encountered before, um, I, I think one of our national tests was about the, the penny-farthing bike. Well, maybe a child has never come across that or the history of that penny farthing bike and therefore it's going to be difficult for them to make inferences about it if they haven't got the background knowledge behind that um so you know and and with assessment then we're, we're already seeing schools here sort of have tracking systems where we're ticking off that um that statement which i just mentioned for progression step three and sort of assessing children whether they're sort of emerging developing or whether they're embedded in that skill of inference and deduction. So um, I, I hope that there can be more understanding going forward about what teaching inference actually looks like, you know, that it is we need to teach um, sort of a knowledge-rich curriculum in a way so the children have the back background knowledge so they are able to infer. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I, I was just thinking there about whether I would really believe you would have to have i imagine fairly a strong guidance around the difference between deduction and inference 
as we're separating them out there about what that means, particularly at, you know, at different levels, at different stages. That sounds quite a, a loose term. Yeah. So, so you can see then for assessment purposes, how can we sort of really say that a child is at a particular level within that statement? So across every book type and every topic, I guess. That's right. So you might be able to infer about one thing, but not about something else, though. Um, and I'm going to throw back to Chris here. Um, reading comprehension skills as a word that I'm using there. Um, they, they, are they? Do, do does the research suggest they're applicable across all text types? Is it you know? Are you sometimes better at doing it with poetry than with nonfiction? Um, or are we able to talk about um, the development of reading like that? It doesn't seem to be a particularly useful way to talk about reading development. I mean, as we say, because each of these supposed skills is completely dependent on the, the context. Um, there's an interesting, um, fantastic blog by, um, a, by Professor Timothy Shanahan, where he talks about uh, the research that seems to suggest that despite the decades of people trying to find it, it, we're not even as teachers particularly capable of identifying what is a, a question that um, assesses an inference skill or a question that assesses you know a vocabulary skill we end up kind of putting them into different categories um, without really realizing so yeah I don't think it's a particularly productive way to think about reading I think what's interesting is where I've had conversations with people about this stuff they've talked about comprehension skills and um, when they've discussed comprehension skills they've talked about them as if they are these um, almost magical ephemeral aspects of reading and yet what it tends to lead to as far as I can tell is the most mundane box ticking version of teaching that, that you can imagine when it comes to reading and yet the reverse where we say well actually once, as, once children are relatively fluent decoders, what we're looking at is developing their knowledge of words, texts, and the wider world. They say, oh, well, that sounds a bit mundane. And yet the, the implications of that in terms of how we teach are quite the opposite. They, it allows us to say, well, actually what we're doing with our teaching is exploring language. We're exploring wonderful books and wonderful letters and wonderful newspaper articles or whatever it might be. So it, there's, I think there's an interesting kind of almost contradiction between um, the precision of how we describe what we think comprehension is and what that allows us to do. Right. But we do love a tick sheet. I will say that, you know, <laughs> as teachers, uh, at some point in my experience, everything comes back to some kind of measurable, tickable thing. And I'm, I'm starting to feel that maybe reading, I, I need to loosen up a bit. Of all the areas, the tick sheet approach is completely ill-equipped to deal with reading. I feel really sorry for people who have to put together a national curriculum for reading, because once you get past the descriptions of the development of fluency, say, or um, early word recognition with phonics, what you're effectively trying to do, trying to pin down, is the bits of language comprehension. And what is langu language comprehension if not everything that there is to know about our language and the world. So how do you try and pin that down in a set of statements in a national curriculum document? I've no idea. Um, I would imagine there isn't really a coherent uh, way to do that. So um, I appreciate it's a pretty difficult job, but um, 
I'd rather embrace the the complex, muddy reality of what reading is than try and uh, pin it down to some uh, skills that don't exist. Fantastic. Well, we have one more ad break. Um, when we come back, we're going to be very short on time. So it will just be our wishes for reading and our things to go forward with when we come back the other side. I will see you both on the other side of these ads. Are you looking to take your phonics practice forward? Then Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised is the programme for you. Created by two schools with an excellent track record in phonics, Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised will help all children become readers and ensure no child is left behind. The programme offers complete support for your phonics teaching, alongside classroom resources and fully decodable readers from Collins Big Cats. To find out more, follow at Letters Sounds on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram or join a free briefing by visiting littlewondlelettersandsounds.org.uk. Teachers Talk Radio is delighted to support Winston's Wish, the UK's childhood bereavement charity. Winston's Wish supports children and their families after the death of a parent or sibling. They provide emotional and practical bereavement support. Expert teams also provide online resources, specialist publications and training for professionals. Find out more about Winston's Wish and pledge your support at www.winstonswish.org. Welcome back, Kweso, uh, um, to uh, Teachers Talk Radio. Um, we are talking with um, Chris Such and Rob Randall. We are come to our, our very end of our um, in-depth chat, really, about lots of different aspects of uh, learning to read, teaching reading, um, and to to wrap things up, I think it would be lovely to hear, possibly, uh, and we'll hear from Rob first, I think, because I, I, you know, through our conversations, I feel like he's got the most on his wish list. Um, but wishes for uh, the the our understanding as a profession or our teaching of reading going forward into this new year, um, Rob. Hello, am I? I'm off mute. mute you are. You are coming through loud and clear. Okay. Excellent. Well, my wish list, I think, for, for Wales is that we have uh, head teachers, teachers and teaching assistants trained in the science of reading going into the profession because, um, yeah, we need to get it right. Um, uh, and to follow sort of England's path in a way, I know, I know that sort of upsets a lot of people in Wales that we, we can't do what England is doing, but I think we need to mandate the teaching of sy systematic synthetic phonics. Um, and I know, you know, you, we spoke earlier about the, the, the sort of problems with having a validated list, but I think we need that in Wales to have a validated list of programmes for schools to use. So we're using the right stuff um, because at the moment anything can go and we can we, we're seeing lots of different programmes uh, creeping in here, which don't align with uh, this, with uh, what we know about how to teach reading well. Um, and I also think we, we need a phonic screening check, too. So we have the data. And we can do a better job than England on that. We're, we've seen how it's been implemented there and we can make corrections to it. I, I, we want it to inform teaching um, as an assessment process. We don't want it to become so high stakes that that 32 pass mark, um, you know, every school is just sort of creeping over that line and you, you see a massive spike in the graph there of results um, over the border. So I think we can do a better job in Wales introducing that here. So, so uh, first, um, yeah. 
an actual screening check as opposed to a street screening check just in name would be my experience of the the English one where often it is a a test more than a a screening yeah yeah and and reading should be high stakes you know it's the most important thing that we get right so um I use that tentatively the the word high stakes because um it should be something we get right and every school gets right um but at the same time we don't want any sort of gaming of that system no which which can happen yeah and Chris, over to you. Any wishes, hopes, and dreams for the future of reading as we move forward into 2022? Well, as uh, Rob already kind of took mine in a good way, so the idea of every senior leader um, having the opportunity, perhaps free funding in order to learn about early reading, and I talk, I'm meaning pri uh, primary teachers and secondary teachers there, um, and secondary school leaders, particularly those responsible for curriculum development, I think that would be a valuable thing. I think um, I'd quite like to see um, greater interaction and alignment between primary schools and secondary schools so that secondary schools know where children are at, so they know how to assess whether children need support with phonics or fluency or whatever it might be. Um, and equally, so the primary schools are supporting and passing on that information on kind of when, when children move up to secondary schools, but also so that secondary schools are ready and receptive to that information and ready to um, do something with it. I hear far too often from secondary colleagues, friends of mine who and my partner, that the idea is that, well, that's something the primary school should have done. And I get that. I get that sense of responsibility. But where it hasn't worked, I'm afraid the baton is passed. Yeah, and I, you know, I feel that a lot working in secondary alternative provision. I see some of those kids who who struggle. Uh, yeah, and certainly, I think there is a need for secondaries to be looking at how they can support that. Now, um, Rob, um, Diokenvauer, uh, Nostar, good luck with the the Welsh sabbatical. I'm glad you got some Welsh into this uh, podcast too. That's brilliant. Uh, well, you know, I, I try. I'm very pro, uh, you know, getting the Welsh in, even as an Englishman. You know, it's drilled into us here. It's a very important part of the, the Welsh curriculum. And thank you for giving up your time to come and talk to us. Um, Chris, good luck with the new role. Thank you very much. C can you forgive a 20-second plug of something? Uh, yeah, if you can cut it down to maybe 10 15. seconds. Go, yeah. Tomorrow I'll be doing a curriculum masterclass alongside Tom Sherrington. If you're interested in reading and how that relates to um, curriculum development, then tune in. Fantastic. I assume you're tweeting that out as well. I'll get on Twitter and find it and we'll get retweeting it as well. Um, thank you so much for your time, Chris. Thank you so much. And no star to both of you. Good night. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.